Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. Context is important for interpreting everything. And therefore, the question is this, what is the context in which you as a Christian should interpret your life, the meaning of your life? Do you think of yourself living in the midst of a secular society with its testimony of materialism and sensuality and relativism, in which case you would be, uh, it would be your tendency to, then to cooperate, to go along and to get along, to concede to its demands, to never rock the boat. Do you think of yourself as, the, as a part of the family in which you grew up, the neighborhood in which you live? a racial group, a socioeconomic class. However you answer the context questions will dramatically affect your manner of living. The writer of Hebrews suggests something far different from these, namely that Christians should think of themselves in this context, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who bear testimony to the faith of the Lord. If you're a believer, he says, this is the context in which you should see yourself. This is the body to which you belong, and whose approval you should desire and court. A great arena filled with the beloved of God, the faithful of all ages. And now is the day when you're running a race. To the sounds of their approval, their encouragement. You got that picture of a stadium filled with all the faithful who've gone before you, and now you're about to run. And there they are to cheer you on, to applaud you, to be behind you, to support you. This cloud of witnesses, of course, refers specifically to the heroes of the faith that are presented in Hebrews chapter 11. People like Noah or Abraham, Moses, and many others. The writer of Hebrews doesn't see these as dead people to be remembered, but rather as living witnesses to be heard. Although they're dead, yet they still live. And what was said of Abel can be said of all of them. By faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. Puritan John Owen Writes, all the Old Testament saints, as it were, stand looking at us in our striving, encouraging us in our duty, ready to testify to our success with their applause. They are positioned around us for this purpose, 
And so we are surrounded by them. This then is how you should conceive of your life. You belong to this noble company of God's people living in this world, but glorifying God through faith. This is the context of your life. You're surrounded by those with whom you will spend eternity. And so you should hear their voices and conform to the pattern of their faith and not and not to the pattern of this world. Today I want to begin to address the problem of sin. Of course, sin is the problem. It is the root of all of our problems, every last one of them. It affects our bodies, our minds, our emotions. We tend to take sin way too lightly, which is part of its deception. In this race that we're running, sin is what trips us up. Sin entangles our feet, possibly bringing us down to the ground. Notice how the writer puts it. The sin that so easily ensnares us. Sin is deceitful. And as we read in Hebrews 3, it is able to lead us off the path. Therefore, we must be wise regarding sin, seeking grace from God to be free from sins that we know about, while avoiding the temptations to sin that are all around us. Think, for instance, how quickly and thoroughly a great man like King David, we preached on this recently, fell into sin when he allowed his heart to lust after Bathsheba. How entangled he became and what a horrible impact that sin had on his life, indeed on his whole family, indeed on his kingdom. He was running brilliantly as almost no one had run before. But sin entangled him and took him down. Sexual sin and pride continue to entangle the feet of many, including leaders in the church. You see, curiosity doesn't limit itself to killing cats. Unless we actively shun sin, we will quickly find ourselves distracted and then entangled. This is our calling the challenging race of a life of faith. Notice what kind of race we run. It's not a short sprint, and we won't finish it with a last-minute burst of energy. It is a long-distance race, cross-country, if you will, and our great virtue is not going to be speed but perseverance. Many of us have experienced a burst of excitement in our Christian life, only to find that 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 enthusiasm must be converted into endurance. This is the all-purpose Christian verse because there is no circumstance, no difficulty, no temptation for which this is not a reliable guide. It says, look unto Jesus. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. This is the secret of the Christian life. The encouragement that we need for our faith. To place our eyes not on the world, not on its enticements and temptations, not on the false substitutes of solutions 
that ultimately cover up and obscure the real problem, but on him who is the source and fountain of all of our spiritual vigor. Whatever you're filling your mind with, whatever you're looking at, that's what will determine your spiritual condition. If your eyes are fixed on this world, you'll soon find yourself compromising with its values. You'll want to be like them or it. Whatever's cool, whatever's popular, you will soon approve of what God disapproves of. And this will be, I'll just note here, this will be a two-part sermon this week and next week. I'm taking the lecture that I gave at Gloria Sancta last week and expanding it a bit to address the ugliness of sin. God's law, you see, was given to shine light on our sin so that we might see its true nature. It's, it's diagnostic. Romans 7.13, sin, that it might appear sin so that we can see it for what it really is, was producing death in me through what, what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. I think this is why so many Christians hate the idea of God's law. It's because they think it's the law that makes them feel bad. And they want to feel good about themselves. All this preaching about sin is so negative. We want to hear things that make us feel happy. Like Adam, we want to blame something else, anything else other than our failure to believe and obey God's word. But the law is not what makes us feel bad. It is the sin that makes us feel bad. The law of God only diagnoses the problem that is already there. It's like the doctor that's mashing on the tender spots to discover where the pain is so we can have a proper diagnosis. While we might not like this, it is necessary if we are to have any hope of a remedy. The problem, which is sin, which is not doing what God says to do or doing what he says not to do, or, let me say, that's either, and that's going to be either directly or indirectly, it's already there. It's already doing its insidious damage. It's the cancer that is eating away at our bodies and minds, indeed at our souls. So let's back up and get started here and see how all this got started. I'm asking you to listen like your life depends upon it, because it does. If the Bible is true... It may not be taken lightly. Now, some of this I know you've heard, but that's okay. Listen again until it soaks in, until it becomes a part of your everyday thinking. I was talking with someone, I think it was Sam and Sarah, uh, about almost like we need this emblazoned in all of our houses, somewhere on the walls, maybe every wall. This place is a communion of love. That's why we're here. Everything we do should serve that purpose. Our jobs, our chores, our meals, our conversations, everything should serve that purpose. Two things are central to the Trinity. 
communion and love. The triune God chose to expand that communion or community of love when he created the world and mankind. We were made to love him, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're to live in communion, loving communion with him and with one another. That was what it was all about. That's what it's still all about. We were called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more little images of God who would then go out and spread that communion of love. So your marriage and your family were to reflect the truth about the Trinity. Paradise, before the fall, was a place of perfect, loving communion. It was the perfect community. God, man, woman, creation, everything was beautiful, and then sin entered the picture. Genesis 3.17, then, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat it, cursed is the ground for your sake. Romans 8.20 20 and 22, For the creation was subjected to futility, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. So even the earth itself, the place, is now impacted by sin. God made the laws that would establish and maintain a loving communion. Sin is always the, the, the disruptor of communion. Because it transgresses the boundaries that God sets up. God says, I want you here. And I want you to do this, and if you'll stay here and do this, you will be happy. You will be blessed. As was pointed out by Pastor Drew Maney at Gloria Sancta, I love this, the garden was a place, paradise was a place full of yes. And only one no. Adam and Eve had not yet learned to live within the boundaries of God's word, which is what defines good and evil. God says, I want you to come to me for that. You're not ready to make those determinations on your own. You haven't learned to come to me. They were impatient. They didn't want to wait to grow up. Had they not sinned, then the Bible would record, and they lived happily ever after. But the devil wants to destroy love and communion and is a general principle that from the beginning the devil wants to come between us and God and between us and one another. He likes to come between husbands and wives and parents and children and relatives and friends and neighbors. His philosophy is to divide and conquer. He and his minions work full time to disrupt communion with God and with one another. This is why we must constantly be, he must constantly be resisted by you and me. He wants to break up the loving communion at your house. And when that happens, he wins. You lose. Every time. And so Paul warns, do not give a place or an opportunity to the devil. Don't let him get his nose in the tent. Don't let him 
get a foothold. The devil does this by separating us, which is death. When someone dies physically, they don't cease to exist, but they are separated from us. The same is true for relationships. It's this simple. Sin kills. Sin separates. When man man fell, it wasn't just the individual souls of Adam and Eve that were affected, but rather it was their entire existence. Their relationship with God, with one another, with the whole creation was destroyed by sin. Sin is the failure to maintain covenant, that is, loving communion with God and others. Thus, when Adam sinned, he did die. Every part of him was corrupted. Every part of you is corrupted. Death, that is, separation from God and the covenant, ensued immediately upon Adam and his act of unbelief. Remember the covenant, that is, God's word, defines our place in the community. And when we don't keep our domain, we're like the angels who did not keep their estate, did not keep their domain, and therefore we break the covenant and we rip apart all the relationships. Adam and Eve were now cut off from the source of life, the covenant. And what did they do? Plead to God for help, mercy, Genesis 3, 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That was the last person they wanted to hear from was God and his work. They hid out. Sin wrecked this place called paradise. Communion was lost. Community disrupted. Adam forfeited everything. That's what death does. Man's greatest need, therefore, was and is to be, was restored communion with God and man. He was now cut off from the covenant. In essence, he was alone. He was alienated from God, alienated from creation, alienated from others, and he was even filled now with internal conflict. Everything is now ugly. The communion is a wreck. Westminster Confession, chapter 6, paragraph 2. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. Every problem that you have, that I have, is due to sin. Every sorrow, every misery, directly, indirectly, original sin, particular sins, every problem the world has is due to sin, every murder, theft, adultery, war, all of it. So sin disrupts and tears apart the covenant. Now, you've got to remember, a covenant's not a thing, but it's a relationship. It's always about love and communion or community. And at the top of our list, then, our greatest priority in life is real communion. 
real community. So, let's talk about the nature of sin. G.K. Chesterton observed that modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin. A fact as practical as potatoes. Certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Sin is a part of the common experience of mankind, and therefore it grabs the attention of all those who don't deliberately close their eyes to it, because it is an inescapable fact. Some imagine and advocate for the essential goodness of man and speak indulgently of his weaknesses, for which man, of course, is not responsible. Something has happened to him. But as time goes on and all alleged remedies and attempts at external reform fail, such people are inevitably disillusioned. Many will continue their search for a solution as long as long as it doesn't mean taking responsibility. Nevertheless, it is an inescapable fact that man has a deep-seated malady. We are constantly confronted, not merely with the problem of our sins, that is, of separate sinful deeds, but with a much greater and deeper problem of sin, that is, of the evil intent of the human nature. Ecclesiastes 7.20 declares that there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. And yet, even those of us who will readily admit that we are sinners, we still rush past our confession and seek out other explanations for our problems. And when we do, and when we do, we forfeit the remedy. An English theologian and pastor, Ralph Venning, wrote a book that was originally published in 1669 as Sin, the Plague of Plagues, and later retitled as The Sinfulness of Sin. And he opens that book with this statement, It cannot but be extremely useful to let men see what sin is, how prodigiously vile, how deadly, mischievous, and therefore how monstrously ugly and odious a thing sin is. As a pastor of nearly 35 years, I too have come to see more and more the destruction and the devastation that sin produces. Sin always comes, this is important, sin always comes disguised. It always has on makeup. It always has a cover-up. It's always deceptive. And while we might not know, uh, and while we might know that something is wrong or sinful, we often have a simple, narrow, and blurred view of it. Sin consistently promises a good payoff in profit or pleasure. But sin is always far, far, far costlier than we thought. Let me tell you, sin is always a bad deal. But you know what? We're impulse buyers. 
The law of God is good. It is perfect. It is the standard. It's not the law, but the sin that leads to separation and death. And death is the ugliest of all things. What is sin? Sin is that which is contrary to the nature of God. Most of you know the Westminster Shorter Catechism answer to the question, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Doing what God says not to do or doing what God sa- not doing what God says to do, there are sins of omission and sins of commission. Take this home. God's law is love. It's not the enemy. It's not harsh. It's not mean. It's not unreasonable. In fact, the Bible tells us it's not burdensome at all to those who love God. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's sweeter than honey. Than a honeycomb. More to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. The law is about loving God. How does God want to be loved? It's about loving our neighbor. How do we love our neighbor? It's even about loving ourselves the right way. In other words, God's law is for our good, and sin is contrary to God and to man. So let me conclude this morning. This is just part one. But the conclusion is important. I'm going to draw today's sermon to a close And again, we'll continue next Sunday with a look at how sin begins and how it affects our relationship with God and with our neighbors and how it affects us. But I cannot stop in the middle of this without pointing to the powerful remedy that God has provided for this root of all of our problems. When we start to take sin seriously, then we will perhaps start to take the gospel seriously. This is what makes it such good news. I've used this illustration before, but if you were walking through the house one day and the television was on and there was breaking news. Science has discovered this one little pill will cure liver cancer. You might pause a moment and think, well, that's... That's, that's good, as you head to the kitchen. But if you had just been diagnosed with liver cancer, you would stop everything. You would rewind. You would say, is there a number? Is there some place I can call? Where, where can I get that cure? And how soon can I get it? And what does it cost? I don't care what it costs. It would become the best news you can imagine. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That's the lead-in, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to what's about to be said. This is a faithful saying and worth all of your acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to do one thing, to save you, to save sinners, to deal with your problems. 
And the way he saves them is first by taking away the guilt of their sins. And second, by working on them to replace sin with righteousness. He said, I'm not only going to wash you and cleanse you and get rid of all those old sins and forgive you, but now I'm going to go to work on you. He'll take you just like you are, but he ain't going to leave you like you are. You know why? Because he loves you. Very few of us truly, deeply believe this. We think the remedy for our problems lies elsewhere. Colossians 1, 3 through 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness. And has conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. O Lord, bring to our thoughts over and over again the great company of saints and martyrs who have gone before us in the history of Your people, and remind us how they, through faith, subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, used their example to challenge us to more, cons- to more consistent courage and obedience. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us even today. Our paths are not nearly as hazardous and difficult as many of theirs was. And we have not yet resisted unto the shedding of our blood, striving against sin. Focus our attention especially upon Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Let his example of enduring the cross and triumphing over death be our constant example and our strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The dark backdrop of our sins set the stage for the bright hope of the gospel. Remembering our sins is never to end in the exercise of morbid introspection. The Word of God shines the light on our sins to expose them and to show them to be the ugly, destructive things that they actually are. God sent His Son to take away our sins, to wash us, to make us as white as snow. And that's why we come to this table every week, to remember this vital truth, to rejoice that we have been saved Rescued from our sins 
and the consequences of those sins. To be renewed in our spirits. To go forth and live the abundant life of Jesus Christ. So let us come and let us eat. Let us remember. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage and wisdom and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means that you have provided. Stir up the hearts of our sons and daughters to eager service in your church. Send laborers into your harvest. And give your word free course to bring the joy of salvation to the many who are yet in darkness. What a heritage you have given to your church. We have the gospel in all its truth. Teach us to appreciate that godly persons were willing to sacrifice their lives for these treasures. Keep us in the truth and make us instruments for its preservation for generations to come. Arm us with the weapons of the gospel to defend the holy ground of our fathers and to stamp out the spirit of compromise and keep us from yielding even the least particle of faith that was once entrusted to the saints. Be our mighty fortress to protect us from the devil. May we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we, as the true church, manifest your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who lives and reigns with you, the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, through all eternity. Amen. May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion now and forever. Amen. Amen.